Granny's grandfather, Roy Williamson. He's up in Wichita. He's in hospice care. They've removed all his tubes, and it's just a matter of time. And so you be in prayer for the family and for Sister Brandy and for her grandfather. And we do not know whether or not he knew the Lord as his Savior. He heard the gospel. And, you know, the Lord can take that. We don't see the hand of the Holy Spirit of God. I'm not going to say that he is saved, but we don't know. God can do things, and we don't see anything happen. But you be in prayer that the Lord will have his will and way in all things as we know he will, and that will accept what it is that God does. Not in everyone else's life, but in our own lives as well. Here in John 3, we begin our study tonight in our Articles of Faith on the subject of the freeness of salvation. The freeness of salvation. Here in John 3 and verse 36, the Bible tells us this great truth. And it states, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This subject is a tremendous truth. And it is well, uh, has been misinterpreted and misrepresented right here in this church. Uh, It was the cause of problems before. And so let us pay careful attention to what the freeness of salvation really does mean. Because if you take any doctrine and run with it one way, you can stretch it into heresy. You can do that with any of them. And so we must not take God's word and make it fit our opinions But our opinions need to fit the Bible. People always want to take what they believe and take the Bible and cut and paste and trim and and bind it and crumple it up and put it into what they believe. We ought to take our beliefs and put them into the Bible, so to speak, that we believe what the Bible says. You don't have to change God's word to... To make it right, it's already right. So the Bible shows us here, what we need to do is believe it, preach it, and practice it. Here we find the Bible speaks and it tells us here about salvation. And people always ask, is it that simple? He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Yes. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Just that's exactly what Paul said to the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And you notice there that's a semicolon. And what little English I recall. That means that that sentence or that phrase can stand on its own. That's a sentence. You could put a period there. But the writer continues with the same line of thought, so he uses a semicolon, 
And he goes on to state, And he that believeth not, the Son shall not see life, comma, but the wrath of God abideth on him, period. So that's the complete thought. That's the way it is in mine. I'm sure it's that way in yours. If you have a King James Bible, I'm sure that's what it says. But what we find is this. Salvation is in belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he that believeth not is the same as unbelief. Unbelief is to have God's wrath abiding on you. Look over in Hebrews. And you know, this is the sin that sends people to hell. It's not what so many think it is, but it's this one. Here in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 19. You know what the Bible speaks of? It says, Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. Remember we spoke not long ago in Matthew chapter 7. Where the Bible tells us, I believe it was last Wednesday. Jesus said, enter ye in at the straight gate. Well, look here in Hebrews 3 and verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. That is what keeps people from heaven is unbelief. So we must remember this. And I believe if we keep that in thought through the message tonight, that all of these things that we say will come in. And we'll see the agreement with them. We will now begin to fill in between those two thoughts. Belief is unto eternal life, and unbelief is unto condemnation. You know, the Bible says that if you believe not, you're already condemned. You're already condemned. Because that's the assuredness of the judge and his sentence, belief, eternal life, unbelief, condemnation. God has already said what's going to happen. But what we find this evening about the subject of the freeness of salvation, if you look in Romans chapter 3, the book of Romans chapter 3, what we find here is that the Lord speaks and he says through his servant Paul regarding salvation and particularly that of justification. He says in Romans 3 and verse 24 that being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you back up into verse 23 with me, God says this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that's man. Man has sinned. And then it goes into verse 24 and says this, being justified freely by his grace. But it continues and it says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Grace is in Christ. It's not in baptism. It's not in the church. It's in Jesus, the person. And then we find here, but primarily what we want to look at, verse 24, is that word freely. And if you remember when Brother Jerry was here, he said this word freely in this uh, verse carries with it the connotation of without cause. 
And so let us substitute, and it says this, being justified without cause by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now what does that mean? Well, again, note it says without cause. There was no reason that provoked God or compelled God to redeem anyone in Jesus. God didn't look out and say, well, Brother Nathaniel, he's a sound man. I think I'll justify him. No, there was nothing that I did, nothing you did, nothing anybody did that caused God to justify us in his sight. We are justified freely without a cause. There's nothing in any of us that moved God to save us. It's free. It's without cause. Look over into Hosea and the Old Testament, the first of the minor prophets. Hosea. You can find him after Daniel, uh, Hosea chapter 14, and note if you would, verse 4. Here the Bible tells us, in Hosea 14 and verse 4, and this, I believe, will help us understand the freeness of salvation. Here in Hosea 14 and verse 4, he said, I will heal, heal, rather, heal their backsliding. I will love them Freely, that is, I will love them without a cause. For mine anger is turned away from him. Now the Bible tells us, in the book of Psalms, that God is angry with the wicked every day. And Romans 3 and verse 23 says, For all have sinned, all have committed wickedness. And come short of the glory of God. And yet, he goes on to say, being justified freely or without a cause. And then here in Hosea chapter 14 and verse 4, he says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely or without a cause. For mine anger is turned away from him. He says, I'm going to turn my anger. Now, who did God's anger go on then? It went on Jesus. By his stripes we are healed. He put all of his anger and all of his hate because God is a holy God and he hates sin. He cannot stand it. It is a repugnant odor unto him. It is as an oozing, flesh-eating wound before his face and nostrils. Human language cannot describe what sin is to a holy God. And the Bible says God turned from sin. He turned from the wrath that was upon us, his anger, and he turned and looked to Jesus. And he saw the holiness, the complete holiness of Christ, that no sin was in him. And you recall reading as well in Romans chapter 4 it says that we are, that he was raised for our justification. He was raised that we might be pronounced free from sin. 
We are justified freely without a cause. And you know, God rose Jesus from the grave to show that we are accepted in him. Here in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, we read this great truth. Romans 4 and verse 25, who, that is Jesus, was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And so what we have here is this, that without cause God loved us, without cause he sent Jesus to die on the cross, without cause he raised him from the grave that we might be saved and we might be justified. Now look in Ephesians chapter 1. This same word, freely, and that's what we want to know here first is, is this use of the word freely. Now again, its connotation is without cause. And it's amazing. So many people think they're saved because of something they do. Well, God, he saved me because of this. God didn't save you because of anything but his love for you when you were unworthy of it. Ephesians 1 and verse 6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace. And we'll define that in a minute. To the praise of the glory of his grace, through which he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Now that same phrase, through which he made us accepted in the beloved, carries with it the same connotation that without cause God accepted us in Christ. We did nothing to get into Christ. We did nothing that would cause Christ to come and get us. He did it all. This is what freeness of salvation means. Now we want you to look at here in Ephesians 1 and verse 6. It says this, and always remember this, to the praise of the glory of, doesn't say our works, his grace. And grace, and this is the simplistic definition of grace, God's unmerited favor. And that means this, merit means you earn it. Well, it's unmerited. We don't earn God's grace. It's unearnable. The God of all heaven and earth, a holy God, a just God, one that hateth evil and loveth righteousness, saved ungodly people. And you know, he didn't have to. Didn't have to. But he did. That's his grace. And he goes on to tell us here, to the praise of the glory of his grace, through which, through his grace, he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now grace is a gift. Look over in Ephesians 2. The Bible clearly illustrates this, and we are laying this all out to establish that salvation is free. And that's really what freeness of salvation means. If you just flip the words over, Salvation is free. It's not earned. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And then it goes into verse 9 and says this. Not of works, 
lest any man should boast. You know, grace is not, as they say, and perhaps some of you have it, where at work, you, you go to work, and you work your regular hours, and you get your paycheck. Then they say, well, if you hit your, your quota or your bonus so many days or whatever in a row, for, you, know, you can apply it to your work, however it is, but some jobs they have a, a quota, and if you hit your bonus or whatever, then they, then they give you a bonus. That's not a gift. You earned that bonus. Grace is a gift. The great illustration. Imagine at a birthday that you go to, that child there. They didn't do anything to be birthed. They didn't earn being birthed, but we give them presents. We call them gifts. They didn't earn those gifts. But we give them. What did it cost the receiver of that gift? It didn't cost him anything. It was free. So in this sense, salvation is free. The Bible tells us that it, this word free carries with it this, gratuitous. God is very gratuitous. He's very giving. Not only this, but it has to do with this. A gift without price or cost to the receiver. Now let's look some more in some scripture. We're in Ephesians, so let's run back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. You know, it's a gift of God. And God does not have to bestow gifts. Here the Bible shows us in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 25. In meekness, instructing those that oppose him, if God, peradventure, will give, now note, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Perhaps, if God be merciful, he will give them. That's a gift. Giving and gift go together. And Paul tells Timothy, he says, you need to be, uh, uh, as a servant of God, you need to be meek in instructing those that are contrary to God. And in doing so meekly, perhaps God, peradventure, remember Abraham when he prayed before Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, God, peradventure, there be 50 righteous men. Perhaps if there's 50 righteous men, will you destroy that city? And God said, no, I won't do it. We don't know what God will do today or tomorrow. And so Paul tells Timothy, he says, perhaps, peradventure, God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Perhaps they'll acknowledge the truth that he is the only Savior. But you see, it's in the giver, and that's God. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as we'll work our way backwards. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The Bible tells us here in verses 5, 6, and 7, we are most familiar with them. 
And here the Lord speaks through Paul, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man? Then verse 6. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. There's the freeness of salvation. In fact, later on, it's either in this epistle or the second epistle of, uh, to the Corinthians, Paul said, I preached freely unto you. He said, I did it without cause. You remember two Sunday nights ago, Paul, the Corinthians were so stingy with their money that Paul had to make tents with Aquila and Priscilla. He said, I didn't even take anything from you. He said, but I preached the gospel freely without cause. He said, you didn't compel me to preach it. I did it without anything from you. So that carries with it the same uh, connotation as well. But we want you to notice well, the gift of God was free to man, but it costed God much. Look over into Romans chapter 5. One of my favorite passages of scripture. Well, I tell you, it always amazes me. Here we find Jesus. The Bible speaks of him, and it speaks of the Father. It always amazed me how that people who are of uh, higher rank in armies and in countries, you know, we don't see President Bush out there duking it out with the Iraqis himself. He's not a leader. And I don't remember when it happened, but it used to be captains and stuff led the way into the battle. But now I guess they're too important. They stay behind and send the pawns ahead. Because, you know, soldiers, they're, they're, uh, they're uh, um, expendable, apparently. I don't know when that happened. But, you know, Jesus fought an old kind of battle, fought an old kind of warfare. The captain of our salvation went before us. And here in Romans 5, and note verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified. There's that word again. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So it didn't cost man anything. But it costed God everything. It costed his son. Remember Abraham when he went on the top? I believe it was Mount Moriah. And he took Isaac up there and God had told him to sacrifice his son. And you remember what he did? He laid him down on the altar. And he picked the knife up to, to uh, slay him. And the angel stopped him. And behold, there was a lamb caught in the thicket. God provided a sacrifice. And if you think about that, the thicket, well, that's nothing more than a tree. And the ram was caught by its horns. You know what horns are? It's power. 
That's what it means. We've read there in Revelation how that horn means power, means authority. There he was, the ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. Jesus hung on the cross with authority to lay down his life. What a tremendous picture. Then we find as well that most familiar passage of Scripture. You know, everybody knows it, but they don't know what it means. John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He gave freely. You know, if, when we give something to somebody, I honestly think human beings, it's in their sinful nature, they expect something back. They do. They expect, well, you know, 50 years later. Well, remember, I gave you something 50 years ago, and you owe me. You know, God doesn't do that. Now, we ought to thank him. We ought to give our lives for his service. We do owe him that. That's our reasonable service. And God does require things of us. But we have the desire to do them. God doesn't hold salvation over our heads and say, I sent my son. You better do it or I'll take him back. No, it's a free gift. Once given, it stays given. This is the freeness of salvation. Now, I want to note this evening, and we have uh, much to cover, but we want you to look here with us tonight. Freeness of salvation. Many people argue this because what our Articles of Faith says is this. We believe that all men ought to have the gospel preached to them without question and that upon hearing the gospel, they ought to repent and believe. And people say, well, wait a minute now. Are they chosen? Well, let's look here. We're not dealing. We're dealing with the freeness of salvation. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. We find here that there are several things. And you remember we alluded to this several times before. Here in Revelation 22 and verse 17, we find permission. We find permission. Revelation 22, verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. So here is the Lord. And the Lord says, he sends forth the invitation and he says, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Kind of like the song we sing sometimes, whosoever will may come. God has given permission. You know, there's not a single person who ever came to Christ and Jesus said, wait a minute, wait, you're not chosen. He never did that. Look over, if you would, in Matthew chapter 11. You see, 
When Jesus says, and through John he writes, whosoever will, let him come, he speaks of permission. And I use the example, and I'm sure you recall it from your days in school. As a young boy or girl, you ask the teacher, can I go to the restroom or can I do something? And the teacher will reply, I don't know, can you? Because the little boy or the little girl has just asked the teacher, he said, am I able? Do I have the ability to go to the restroom? Well, I'd hope if you're in school you have that ability by now. But that's what he's saying. He says, do I have the ability? He's not asking for permission. If he asked for permission, he would say, may I? And in Revelation 22 and verse 17, and in Matthew 11 and verse 28, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye. Now that's italicized, so it's not there in the original. It's put in for smoothness. So let's just go ahead and take that out. He said, Come unto me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's permission. Jesus has said unto every person who is laboring, who is trying to save themselves, come to me and I will give you rest. He has given permission. But not all have the ability. You realize that there is nothing in this world, no law that prohibits me from building my own spaceship and going up into outer space. I have permission to do that. Nobody can stop me. I don't have the ability to do it. And look now, if you would, as we compare. Look over to John chapter 6. Again, we're dealing with the freeness of salvation. And I believe, in particular, redemption. I believe that Jesus has chosen a number that only he knows... And that his blood shed at Calvary, taken to the mercy seat in heaven, only atones or reconciles for that number. I don't believe Jesus died for people who are in hell. That's absolutely insane. To think that he shed his blood and it wasn't, uh, couldn't save certain people. That's ridiculous. Now what we're dealing with again is the freeness of salvation. And if you read the article of faith, went through it, it talks a lot about the responsibility of man. And that's what we're going to get to in a moment. Now again, remember, Jesus has given permission. And now he begins on ability. John 6 and verse 44, where he says, No man can come. No man can. No man has the ability to come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus didn't say no man may come. No man has permission. He says no man has the ability to come. And ability and permission are two different things. And so he says no man can come. Except the Father who has sent me draw him. No man has the ability in and of himself to come to God. 
Look down into verse 65. John 6 and verse 65. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given. Except it were freely or without cause given unto him of my father. Because again, remember, given, gift, that's free. He said, you can't come unless it was already given to you. Well, what we find is this. That the father draws. You know, not even the elect of God have the ability to come to Christ in and of themselves. He still must draw the elect. You know, how does he do that? Through the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit of God. That's how he does it. We preach. That's why we were told in Mark 16 and verse 15 to preach unto every creature. Because we don't know who it is whom God has chosen. Now what we have here is that God here has spoken of ability and permission. Now I want you to take note with us here. Since no man has the ability to come, why do men not have the ability to come to Christ? Well, it's because of sin. Sin. They are dead in trespasses and in sins. Dead men cannot move. Remember Lazarus? He didn't move until Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. He had no ability to do so. So the Bible tells us that the Lord must do something. He must quicken them, make them alive, that they might come. And that quickening is free. He does it without cause. There is nothing that you or I can do. We cannot smile at God enough. We cannot do works enough that God would save us. It's free. Now again, we look here. There's a question that has been proposed. And look over to Romans chapter 9, if you would. Romans chapter 9. Many people ask the question. And they'll say this. Because again, we're dealing with man's responsibility. God said. The Bible says that God hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. That's man's responsibility to repent and believe. The Bible also says that man is incapable of repenting and believing, except God draws him. And so the question that many people ask and they'll say is this. If man can't come, then why is he responsible? Well, let's look at that. Now that seems common sense, doesn't it? If he doesn't have the ability to come, why then does God still hold him responsible? Well, let's look in Romans chapter 9. First of all, we're going to read a couple verses and then we'll move backwards. The Bible tells us here, if you know with me, in verse 19. Well, let's back to verse 18. Therefore... Hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now note verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? 
For who hath resisted his will? Isn't that the same question that others have asked? If, if man is, is incapable, then how can God find him responsible? How can God say, man, you're responsible to come to me, and yet you have no ability to come? How can God do that? Well, let's remember, whose fault is it that man no longer has the ability to come to God? It's not God's. God created man. Remember in the garden before Adam sinned? Adam came to God. They had sweet communion, sweet fellowship. And when Adam sinned, all of creation fell in transgression. They lost the ability to come to God, but responsibility remained. He was still responsible, though he had no ability. So that is the answer to that question. Men have always been responsible to God. We were once able, but now we are unable. And that is why salvation is free. It must be free. Because we cannot come to it. We cannot work for it. We cannot earn it. It must be freely given. Because man is incapable of it. Now let us note here. Again, the Bible tells us that there are a great deal of many people and the Bible says that when the gospel is preached, all men without exception, it is to be preached to. And that all men without exception are responsible to repent and believe. God said, he commandeth all men everywhere. He commands all men. Doesn't matter what color you are. Doesn't matter what gender you are. Doesn't matter uh, your social status, poor, rich, middle class, whatever. Doesn't matter where you live. It's kind of like people say, well, what about all those? You know, those uh, Incas and the Mayans down there in Mexico that when Columbus sailed over, they had never had the gospel. What about them? Yeah, they were responsible to repent. You realize the chief duty, the very chief duty, the utmost, the highest duty, the most uh, uh, serious duty of man is to seek God. That's the first thing every man ought to do is to seek God. And because we are sinners, Romans chapter 3 says, there is none that seeketh after God, no, not one. Everyone is to seek after God. But the Bible shows us here in Romans 9. And we want to read some things here. In Romans 9, and, and then we're going to look at a couple more verses and then we'll be done. But in Romans 9, he says this, and I want to look at verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that Call it. You see there? Election is not based on works. It's based on God who calls. It's free. We don't earn election. We don't earn God's choosing. 
We don't earn salvation. It's absolutely free. Now look back to our main text of John 3. And as I have stated before, and I'll say this again, there's not a single person who shall appear, at, who shall be resurrected at the second resurrection. And that is the resurrection of the damned. Those who will appear at the great white throne judgment. There's not a one who will appear there and say unto Jehovah God, the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll not say, you didn't choose me. Not a one of them will say that. Because they were all responsible. They all sinned. For we have all sinned in Adam. People say, well, it's not my fault. Well, it's not God's fault. And it's not my fault that you sinned. It's my fault that I sinned. But people want to lay blame at God's feet. And you can't do that. You can try, but it won't get you anywhere. But here in John 3 and verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now hold your place in John 6. Turn over there and hold it there, because we're going to close with that, a verse over there. But turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is what the gospel does. Either the gospel, as we sung tonight, will be a lifeline, pulling ones out of the deep, or it shall be coals heaped upon an already burning fire. That's what the gospel is. It's gas on a fire, or it's a rope that's pulling people out of quicksand. Here in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 15, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life, and who is sufficient for these things. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that what the Bible says? He says either the gospel is a savor of life unto life, it's either pulling people into eternal life, or it condemns them. Because they will not believe. Now as we close John 6 and verse 37. I've never heard anybody say. Well I came to Jesus and he didn't accept me. Well if they say that. They really never went to him. Because the Bible says here in John chapter 6. And verse 37. All that the father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You see, God has given permission. But you know, the only ones who come are those whom he draws, freely draws, without cause he draws them. By his grace, he draws them. He gives them, and he brings unto them, them unto him, rather. 
He says, I will never cast them out. I will in no wise cast out. What a comfort that is. Let us have no doubt of the salvation in Christ. You know, it's utterly amazing to me. You talk to people about the Lord and you say, are you saved? And they'll say, well, uh, I just... I'm, I'm, I just don't think I'm that, uh, uh, I'm just not good enough to be saved. Praise God, because he doesn't save good people. It's kind of like to him we sing, just as I am. And then you know you got the other folks who say this, well, I'm too bad. You know, you got some folks who say, well, I'm, I'm, oh, I apologize. You got the ones that say, well, I'm, I'm too awful to be saved. That's who Jesus came to save. And then you got the other ones who say, well, I'm not bad enough for the Lord to save me yet. Well, that's amazing. Not bad enough. Well, I tell you what, that's a, like we preach Sunday morning, they got a lot of self-worth. They're not bad enough. You know, if you commit one ill thought, that's a sin. That's enough to send somebody to hell. You know, even if you never committed that one ill thought, you'll still die and go to hell because one never trusted in the Lord. It's unbelief that sends a man to hell. It's not like all these other people say. They're like, well, it's this sin or it's that sin. It's that. It's unbelief. He said there in our text, John 3 and verse 36, He that believeth hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not hath not life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. And you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, God's wrath abode on us. Because there's a point in our lives where we were unbelievers. For me, it was the first 17 and a half years of my life, I was an unbeliever, and God, by his grace, brought me unto the day of my salvation, just as sure as he did all of you. By his grace, you did not perish before that day. Now, you think about that, all the stupid things that we did before then, and how we probably should have died, but miraculously, he kept us from it. By his grace, we were unbelievers. His wrath did abide on us. But when we believed, by his grace, when he brought us to it, his wrath abode on us no more. It was already laid at Calvary. Some, there's some people believe that every time someone believes in the mind of God, the scene of Calvary repeats itself. That's ridiculous. Our sins were laid upon him. But you know, the realization of our salvation didn't come to us until we believed. So many people, they think because election happened before the foundation world, they were saved before the foundation world. Salvation is in time. It's in time. How in the world do you think people come under conviction of sin? It's because they're sinners. And God's wrath abiding on them. Well, I tell you what, when that happens, look to Jesus. Because he's the only hope. Don't take good works. Don't take anything else. Say, Lord, I've got these. 
He'll say, no, that's not it. So may God help us is our prayer. The freeness of salvation. Again, it's the responsibility of all who hear the gospel to repent. Boy, I tell you what. People say, is it that simple? It is that simple because Jesus did it all. He did everything that you and I, that God would draw us unto him. So may the Lord bless us is our prayer. Let's stand tonight be dismissed. And we pray that the Lord will bless each one of you throughout this week. Be in prayer again for those we mentioned. And again, if you have anything or anything on the prayer list that needs to be updated, please let us know. And we ask that you be in prayer for us as well with all our studies and all that we have to undertake uh, this week. We want to go to Lord in prayer. and We'll ask if uh, Brother Leon might lead us. And then Brother Eddie, if you'll close following him. Brother Leon, please. Amen. Mm-hmm.